0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell some you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, it's his third time on, and the first time we met, I wore a Bruce Springsteen shirt, and he came to the studio in Burbank. I'm wearing a different Springsteen shirt, and I remember we talked about concerts, and he told a story about how when he was in high school, or early in college, he went to see Blue Oyster Colt at the Spectrum in Philadelphia, and he's the only person to ever talk about Blue Oyster Cult on my show until I actually had Albert Bouchard, the drummer from Blue Oyster Cult, come on the show, and we talked about, and I'm going to talk to Patrick about this, the amazing Godzilla solo. If people have never seen Blue Oyster Cult, they used to come on, and, and the drummer would have this Godzilla mask, and he said it was such a pain in the ass to play with, but the hell with that. We're going to talk about Blue Oyster Cult, because why not? That's what you don't talk about when you talk about to a guy who is one of the biggest shows that just ended its run. Uh, you know him from Better Call Saul, and it's Patrick Fabian. How you doing, Patrick?
1: Hey, Steve. Good to see you, man. Thanks for having me back. You know, nothing is worse than a drummer who has to wear a Godzilla head for the worshipping idols to complain about wearing said head. You know what I mean? It comes
0: with the territory. Well, it's funny, though. He said it weighed. It weighed so much because it had lights and, and it was all crafted. And he said it was just weird, but I just thought it was funny that as me as a kid, when I went to see Blue Oyster Culture, I just always remembered you remember this mask and you're like, oh my God, that's insane.
1: Oh, it was incredible. I mean, talk about stagecraft. If, if I saw it today, you would be like, is that paper mache? Are those flashlights in the eyes? Right? Like, Dude,
0: it's so rudimentary. So we got a lot to talk about. I want to start off with cameo. And I saw you doing some cameos for a good cause. And, and uh, tell me about the cameo and what it's for. And I know it's for some food banks, or tell me all about that.
1: The people at Cameo come, went online and uh, was auctioning off a bunch of stuff that we had signed for Better Call Saul. And he got a really good response on it. Um, and uh, instead of doing the same thing, I thought, you know, I will contact the Cameo people and see if I could do that and donate donate some of the money to charity. And it's so easy. And so uh, easy charities that come to mind are the Los Angeles Food Bank and also the Rio Grande Food Project, which gives uh, food out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, – and it turns out uh, people have swarmed to Cameo to have me uh, you know, send them these things. And at first I was like, well, this is strange and what do I do? And it actually is very easy and it's actually really fun. Uh, people reach out. They get to donate some money to a great charity and I get to be a goofball for them for two or three minutes on Cameo. Um, and it's funny, the requests that come in, um, run the gamut. People want me to be Howard Hamlin. People want me to encourage them when they get into school. A lot of lawyers are contacting me. Um, and then people just want a little pep talk, a little boost. People are nice. Uh, people will make surprise cameos for other people to just make their day because they're like they're big fans. Could you just say something? And uh, and I find that connection with fans is really great. Plus, it's really great to generate money for great causes and all that sort of thing. And um, you know, I'm probably going to stay on it and maybe just keep changing causes as the as the uh, as the year goes around. You know what I mean?
0: So when they send it to you. Do they have, okay, that's what they want you to do, Howard Hamlin. Do they sit there and say, okay, you know, our friend is having a downtime? You know, do they want you to improv or do you? Do they send you a script? I mean, I know people have done them where, you know, they do with different characters. But how do people contact you? Do they sit there and say, do this for us? They, they, they will do both.
1: Some people are like, I need you to say these words. Um, and some people just say, like, could you, as Howard uh, give them a pep talk. They're really down. Or like somebody just graduated from college and they love your show. We'd love to give this to them as a gift, you know? And so I don't know. I'm not so much in character, like I'm not wearing a suit or anything like that for the most part. Um, but I do talk as Howard to people. And then I'll usually break and sort of say like, obviously it's me because obviously it's me. It's it's fun. It's like a fourth wall sort of thing that you do. Uh, but people will sometimes specifically give you a script. Other times they're saying, say whatever you want. A lot of happy birthdays, which I am more than happy to accommodate to sing happy birthday to people, and um, it's that window that the internet can do when it's good that opens into uh, a whole breadth of different people's ideas of who you are or who you thought you are. You know, I'm an actor, so I suffer from don't you know who I think I am all day long. So it's really great to have other people reach out and say you're actually this, or I want you to be this, and it's interesting to see whether I can be those things. And, of course, yes, the you know, Internet's full of crazy corners, and I get, you know, crazy requests, too, that I, I, I don't do. I just politely decline. And I think they know that. But, uh, but you know, I can't – it feels like there's a lot of 14-year-old boys out there who are like, say this. Is he going to say it? You know, and I don't. The answer is no, I don't say
0: it. We, we did that in college. We're the same age. <laughs> We did that in college. We, my buddy, we called one of those uh, adult lines, and my friend hooked up a speaker in in the dorm, like in our dorm area, and we're talking. And I got on, and they're like, "You talk, Cooper." I'm like, ah, "I'm afraid." And we're just sitting there, and we sounded. I'm sure this woman was on the other end, filing her nails, going, "Oh great, another bunch of college kids are paying 19.99 a minute. Minute after two minutes, they'll be gone."
1: <laughs> That's exactly the time limit.
0: <laughs> so, have, has any what, give me one of the requests that you won't do? Like what what you've gotten recently? I just can't do that.
1: Oh well, I tell you what. Somebody really wanted me to do uh, Chuck McGill's uh, ranting speech from Chicanery. Uh, the episode named Chicanery, which is where Chuck, in case you don't remember, is, is in the courtroom and he breaks down and he has this beautiful rant. Michael McKean delivers this Emmy-worthy performance. And somebody wanted me to do, they wanted me to do it, to do an imitation of Michael McKean. And um, one, I don't have a Michael McKean imitation. Uh, And two, it felt like a violation. You know, I wouldn't do something like that, you know, unless uh, unless he wanted me to or something like that. You know what I mean? So that's kind of, I'm not sure why they want Howard to do an imitation of, of of Chuck, but, you know, uh, I don't know what goes on in, in the minds of people when it comes to that. So that sort of stuff. No, anytime there's swearing involved, even if it's sort of like in jest, like an inside joke, I just, you know, de facto don't do. That sort of thing, you know.
0: Now, how, how many requests are you getting? Because the show just ended and, and it was, the ending was, it was so great and it was so hyped and everyone was psyched. You must be like getting requests left and right. And what do you do? do? you just sit up, you set up your camera and just do it like that? Or how I many, how many requests are you getting?
1: Well, you can do it on the phone I get a bunch, you know, I, I just do it on my phone. I get them as they come in, you know, basically you get clusters of like four and five that come in and you sit down and you spend about 15, 20 minutes and you, you video out and the app on Cameo allows you to just do it right through that. And then I send it and then that's it. So uh, it's it's pretty easy, and uh, and it, it, it's actually really fun. So I'm glad I'm doing it right
0: now. Now, what was the week like after the last episode? Because I saw on Twitter and Facebook, and it's one of those things, episodes, TV shows go. But, you know, you don't really think of many TV shows that Breaking Bad was a great show. Better Call Saul is a great show. They both ended, so it has that. And then they have the callbacks with the guys from Breaking Bad. And so there's so much hype. And Hollywood right now, we're open again. I mean, everything's out. People can be out. What was it like? Was it a whirlwind on that last last week in Hollywood? What was it like for you guys after the show ended?
1: Well, you just said it. The last week in Hollywood. Last week in Hollywood, it was a Hollywood week is what it was, because we started off on Saturday night at the Hollywood Critics Association, and... It's it's an awards show at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills. It has all the wonderful trappings of show bits. and There's a, a bit of a red carpet, and we're interviewing, and we're all there. The only people who couldn't be there were those who were working out of the country, which was Jonathan Banks and Tony Dalton, because the show was nominated, and also John Carlo was nominated, Michael Mando was nominated, uh, Bob Odenkirk was nominated, Ray Seahorn was nominated, and so we sat down and... They started having the awards as it goes off. And this is the Hollywood Critics Association. They've always been fans of us to begin with. But right on the early part of the evening, John Carlo wins. And I'm like, oh. And then we become, you know, those people who are popping up and hugging one another. And then Carlo gives up a, a beautiful speech. And, and then the very next award, Ray wins. And we're popping up and hugging. And we're those people. And then Ray gets up and she gives a speech. And, and then uh, later on, Giancarlo got the uh, icon of... Uh, the Icon Award, when they did an overview of his career. So then I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I know John I've working for seven years, and yet they show his career. And I had forgotten. I had forgotten how much he had done. I had forgotten the enormity of his career. And so then he gives a, a very gracious speech about being an artist, being connected. And, and then all of a sudden, even though we're at the trappings of a Hollywood party and it's an awards show, there's those moments that actually touch you. And John Carlos giving one of those, and it's great. And then he leaves, and then Bob Odenkirk wins, and Bob gets up and gives a speech. And all of a sudden, I'm like, "Oh, we're those assholes. We're that asshole table." Because that- As other shows and other- came to get awards too. And then I'm like, "Oh, it's become apparent that this table's going to get." And yet, even though everybody at our table had gotten an award, um, I was still surprised when they called Better Call Saul as a, uh, as a best cable drama series. And, uh, and we jumped up on stage and Bob spoke for us and it was really wonderful. We went backstage and we all got awards with our names on it. We took pictures with it. And so that was Saturday night, a whirlwind of fun a clean sweep for Better Call Saul. It was really fun because after six years, um, Uh, it's still nice to get recognized for the work that you've done and uh, to maintain it that long. I think we've done a pretty good job at keeping a pretty high level of storytelling and I'm proud of it without a doubt. And it was it was just fun to get a little shiny statue. It just was. Uh, And then Monday comes around and we all gathered over at Bob's house, Ray, Mando, myself, Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould and some of the writing staff to watch the final episode. So we went over and we sort of hugged and we like you know created a little party all of a sudden and and uh, even though I was I, I knew it was going to be the last time we were sort of really together like this at least under the guise of the show is active and um, and the reason I say this is we we watch the show and we're cheering and then we're taken by the story and of course I hadn't seen it yet no one's seen it except Peter and Vince and uh, the show ends and you know we give some speeches. We get up and because we're actors, right? We do all that. We do speeches. We cry. We hug. And and then, you know, you got to leave. And you leave by 11 o'clock, 1130. I got kids to go to school the next day. Good luck, you know. And you sort of pick up your stuff. You say, bye. Bye. I'll see you. I see you. But you walk away that same way that you you, do when you leave set. I'll see you. I'll see you down the road. I mean, I'll see you soon. Well, you might or you might not this is a moment and for me it was only seven years of my life I'm looking over at Vince and Peter thinking this is 15 years of the prime of your life and it was transformative like who were they when they came in and started this so I can't imagine what they're thinking and feeling and uh, I get in the car and they go home Tuesday morning I wake up I take the kids to school and all of a sudden I am sad I'm sad in a way I was surprised how sad I was. I was like, "Whoa!" And I hadn't been. I hadn't worked on the show, you know, in about half a year, almost three quarters of a year, right? And I knew the show was over. And I've been watching the show, but there was something about seeing the finale and having the page get turned, right? Because now it's in the history books.
0: Now we can we can talk about
1: it and dissect it all we want, but now it is no longer active. It is now part of things that go on the shelf, things that live in your historical knowledge. And with that knowledge, I think I finally recognized that it was over. It's over. And I think part of me had was clinging to a naive uh denialism that we were gonna go back for season seven or something like that. Then I saw the end and we all hugged and I was like, oh, it's over. So I didn't realize how much I'd been putting that at bay until I realized how sad I was all Tuesday. So I was sad and grumpy. Sad and grumpy on Wednesday too a little bit and then it sort of worked its way up because then you're like oh uh, there's a wonderful sense of ownership and pride that I got to be a part of the thing in the first place for God's sakes how lucky and fortunate one in a million you know and I got to be on it so I'll I'll, I'll take that and now you know a, a week and a half later um, it sits in a just a great spot in my body um, and there's also just the business of the business you know what's going on next what's the next audition? What's the next thing I can can do? What's the next project I get to do? And, and I'm excited about that too. So, you know, Better Sol will always be with me obviously and it's going to pay dividends I think by people uh, having seen this this last season in particular and go like, oh yeah, let's get Patrick in if we can. You know, I think it'll help open some doors but, you know, I've been a journeyman actor all my life which means basically I auditioned for the things I got, so I don't expect anything different going forward. Just I hope that there's uh, you know opportunities out there that this this opens some doors. Which I think it
0: will. Well, you know what's funny? Last time you're on was season five had wrapped It was just airing, and you had told me how. When it wrapped, you weren't sure if they're going to have you back on season six. But then they asked you back. Then you came back. Now your role really this season it really expanded. I mean, when you went, I remember you weren't sure which way they were going to take your character because it was you know I think it was five when they were throwing bowling balls at you. It was sort of left in limbo. But so when you got on set, when did you know that you would have such a an integral part of this? Well, the first half of the last season.
1: You know, they called me before the season began to let me know that, um, you know, Peter Gould, Vince Gilligan, and Melissa Bernstein are other uh, other of the, the three headed dragon that runs Better calls, so Call Saul. Called me before the season, and if you're an actor out there, you know you don't want the producers calling you before the beginning of the season. <laughs> and they called for exactly that reason to give me a heads up and let me know that, as Vince put it, uh, we found something really cool for Howard that's going to really help hinge the show and swing it to the second half of the season but that means that your services are not going to be needed past August and they were giving me a heads up you know, one for family and two for looking for work and all that stuff Um, but that's all they told me I mean I knew that I was going to die and I asked which writer wrote the episode and they told me Tom Schnauze which made me laugh because I knew Tommy would like to do that and um, other than that I didn't know anything other than that I went by script by script so I had no idea how much they were going to have me uh, in it and how much that final uh, episode was going to be. I mean, that's sort of Wall Howard in that, in that last episode, uh, 607. But as the scripts unfolded, like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that. Oh, I'm boxing? Wait, what's going on? What was I mean, that really? like?
0: What was the boxing like? Because it's such a funny scene. It's one of those, things, those scenes that comes out of nowhere. Me and Joanne, my wife, are watching it. And all of a sudden, you're like, we're like, wait a second! Are they gonna are they gonna box? I mean, that's just something you don't think about. <laughs> it was a great scene, but how do they prep you for that? I mean, it must. I mean, I don't think you've boxed before.
1: No, no, no. We train uh, the the twins. It's all the Salamanca twins box, and uh, um, uh, Luis Mancada uh, trained me, and he helped do the choreographing for it as well. And uh, so Bob and I did some training, and Bob and I, you know, Bob Ray and I lived together in Albuquerque, and so we would box in our garage. You know, two middle-aged white guys boxing each other in Albuquerque, right? I can't imagine what the dog walkers thought. Um, and when he came down to do it, of course, it was really choreographed. I tell you what, we're standing there. They had taken this warehouse and made it into that beautiful boxing ring. It's all lit gorgeously. They got these cameras everywhere, and Bob and I are standing up there on stage, with boxing gloves on. And I was like, "Can you believe we get to do this?" And he's like, "Isn't is show business grand?" And I had to think, what a lucky, lucky thing. And then it, it played like gangbusters. I thought it worked, and I think it actually was justified, the way they sort of came up with it. It wasn't too crazy left and center. It kind of made sense, and it was fun. Oh my God, it was so much fun. Um, and hard work. I don't know if anybody's not boxed out there, but when, uh, there's muscles right here that you didn't even know you had if you're throwing punches, even even half punches all day long. So I had a lot to do this season, and You know, I spent the first five seasons, a lot of the time, listening to people's monologues, listening to people talk, reacting to Jimmy, reacting to Kim, reacting to Chuck, and that's okay. Um, I had a couple of things here and there, uh, but, you know, this year uh, Howard had a lot to say, and they kept using him to to say those things. And I think in particular in 607, that final scene with uh, Jimmy and Kim in their apartment, I think uh, Howard voices a lot of things that the audience has been wondering as, as well. Why are you doing this? What's going on? And he gets to say some things to them that I think the audience has also been wondering. We've been rooting for Jimmy and Kim, right? We've been rooting for them to like move to Santa Fe and have some kids or something, even though we know that's not going to happen. So when Kim especially sort of takes the lead in this whole scheme to knock down Howard, I think people start going like, well, wait, 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 wait. I, that's not the Kim Wexler I, I know and love. And so Howard gets to give voice to that. Like, why are you doing this? What's going on? And then of course, you know Lalo comes in, and then uh, the uh, the consequences, the ill thought out consequences of their actions, lays right at their feet in the form of me.
0: Well, that scene, that's like an act. That's like an actor's masterclass. Seriously, I watched that. And I, I watched it a few times just when you were coming on on YouTube. And it's funny because you're right. Like you know, you were rooting for that, but then all of a sudden, me and my wife were watching and we're going, you know, what? they're they're sort of dicks. You know, like like before you liked it, but you're like, yeah, I'm like. And especially with Kim, because you're like, you know, what an idiot. But you come in, and it's one of those things, as an actor, how long did you study that scene? And I know you have background, you've done stage, so for you, you know a longer monologue is something that you're an actor. You're a trained, crafted actor. When you saw that scene, do you just sit there, do your eyes light up, do you get, like, excited? And then do you get second doubts going, man, I really got to nail this, because this is some killer writing
1: oh yeah absolutely I got scared I absolutely was scared and uh, I mean I was thrilled I, got, I didn't know I knew I was going to go but I didn't know which episode until I finally got 607 and started reading it and it plays the same way it reads I'm like page after page of oh chatty Kathy Howard oh he's chatty chatty and then the office scene then I'm me and me and Cliff and, and it feels like that's the end me and Cliff in the office when Cliff's like it doesn't matter if it is true it's over so when I come back to that next one I'm like whoa whoa. And I was excited. I was excited to, uh, that they were entrusting me with this much. Uh, and then I was absolutely petrified because, you know, I'm you know, it's a willy-nilly broken, esteemed actor. And so I was worried that I wasn't going to live up to the challenge. You know what I mean? Um, but that's sort of natural. At least it is for me. And so uh, I started working on it. I worked on it with Kim. with Ray and Bob you know running lines mostly I decided not to like make many choices it was more a practical notion of getting the lines in my head and then I went through and wrote out a whole bunch of ideas and thoughts of where this is coming from and subtext and did that kind of homework and then you know we rehearsed uh, on a Sunday before we shot uh, just to go ahead and get a feel for the lay of the land physically where we were going to be because we knew it was a monster scene we were going to spend the whole day doing it and um And then, you know, you work on it, you work on it, and then on the day, finally, there's that one time where you've rehearsed it a little bit, you've stumbled through it, and then all of a sudden they're like, all right, we're on a bell, and I'm standing outside the apartment door, and I'm scared. They say action. Knock, knock, knock. Jimmy opens the door, and we start the scene. And, you know, in the end, you're going to work. In the end, you're doing your thing. And so, even though I have the majority of the of, of dialogue in it, we all have something to do, and we got to figure out the moments that work, the moments that don't work. And the, the first couple of times through, I'm feeling my way. I'm maybe losing a line here or there. Uh, I'm feeling this moment works, oh, but then that doesn't. And oh, next time around, you start making those mental notes like, next pass, I want to do this. Oh, I need to take the glasses out like this. This is the rhythm of this moment. And you try and get those rhythms right and stitch them together. So, finally, I did a take and we got to the end of it. And when I finished, Bob and Ray looked over at me and they went, they gave me a little heads up like, yeah, that's it. So we got an actor reassurance of like, Hey, that felt good. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And then I heard Tom Schnauz, who was directing it as well from uh, over a video village going up, uh, right? That's it. That's it. Back to one. Let's get that again. And so at that point, you know that you're in a, in an area, in a, in a, a pod where you want to work. You're like, oh, this is the real structure of it. We've got great stuff in here. Let's go back and mine that. And so you do a couple of big long passes again so they get that, and then then you start breaking it down. And at that point, you don't want to get too distracted. You want to keep your energy up and all that stuff because you're going to be there for the next four or five hours, breaking into coverage, breaking into this. And so it was important for me as an actor to sort of maintain, like, where was I? What was I feeling? And Ray talks a lot about Where's this moment sitting sit in my body? Is it in his neck? Is it his chest? Is it my gut? And I tried to map that out and remember that. Um, it was also fraught with the whole other layer of knowledge of like, oh, it's my last day working with these guys. This is the last time I'm, I'm working with my friends. This is the end of me. My character's leaving and the actor's leaving and it's all over. So that was, you know, freighted with everything. Um, but then handsome Tony Dalton comes in and, you know, even if he is going to kill me, he's super
0: handsome. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so, did you at any time really get into your head? Like, when you sit there, When you, even though you know, because as you say, you're an actor, I used to do stand-up comedy. We're all insecure people. We always second-guess. That's our nature. People can say, <laughs> oh, no, it's not. And if you say that, then you probably suck at what you do because it's a second nature to second-guess. Did you ever sit there, even when they said the insurance that, you know... You have it, but when you said, when you're doing another angle of it, anytime did you get in your head and say, I'm not matching the output of my last take? Or were you pretty even keel on it? Because once you knew it was there. Uh,
1: I'm pretty good at, uh, unfortunately, jumping out into the, the audience to take a look at what I think I'm doing, which is not good. It's a bad habit. I don't like that. I like being much more in it. But the good news is, is that we've, we've got continuity. I've got Tom behind the camera. And I've got a whole bunch of people who have now watched what's going on. Uh, Jen Carroll was there, and Jen was good about coming in and being like, "You actually moved here. It was your left hand that did that." Uh, but I'm pretty good about memorizing that stuff. Like once we've locked something in, uh, I like I'm, I'm pretty good at recreating at least the physicality of what's going on. The only trick that happens with me is sometimes I'll be worried about, for instance, like oh, it was the right glass, it's left glass. So I'm, if I'm thinking right glass, left glass, I'm not thinking about what. Uh, Howard's doing you know what I mean so it's that duality that everybody has to play with anyways um but there was moments I mean there's moments that just work and you know it works uh talking and listening with one another that writing is so good and when you really sort of get to to burrow into the subtext of what's happening and you can feel it with your fellow actors plus i am worked with Ray Seahord for God's sakes I'm working with Bob Odenkirk so these guys are, are fantastic, top of the game. So it feels, it's fun. It's really fun. And a couple of times, like we do a take and then all of a sudden they, 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 they say cut and we sort of giggle like,
0: ooh,
1: I like, that was good. That was fun. And you want, right? You want that. Take the piss out of yourself a little bit, but also acknowledge that, you know, you're working on something good here.
0: Now, was there, during that scene or, or during the whole show in general, especially this last season, was there any room for improv as an actor? Or is it one of those shows that's very scripted? We're going by the book. How did it work on set there?
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, are you kidding me? Is it, is it award-winning. These are of the best writers I've ever worked in my life. They've hammered out the ellipses. They've hammered out the parentheses. They've hammered out these words for a reason. Um, I don't improvise. Uh, I do a word perfect. And... Um, and that's what I think they expect and what we've we noticed. If, if you have a problem or if you have a, a suggestion or if it's not working for you, that's a different subject and we can talk about that. Usually what we do is we talk about that beforehand. Rarely on the day uh, is stuff changed like that. But beforehand, we're in room and the executives are absolutely open to saying, like, well, okay, this isn't ringing well. All right, well, let's talk about this scene. Or I'll call up to say, I'm not sure why I'm saying this because, and I'll, because this and this and this. So why am I saying this? And then all of a sudden they'll be like, well, because of this. And I'm like, oh, or maybe it's a piece of information I don't have yet, which sometimes they would give you, sometimes they would not. They're like, no, this needs to be said because it's important for something that's coming up later. And you go, oh, okay, well, then how should I think about it? And then we discuss how we should think about it, maybe how we should deliver it, what's needed for the script. And that's good. But in terms of like, oh, I'm going to make up stuff? Absolutely not. These writers are too good. They've already given me a blueprint.
0: I'm not a writer. Now, what was it like? And I always wonder when you're sitting there and you, first of all, you know you're going to get shot. You're in the scene. You're sitting there and he's putting the he's putting the, the silencer on. And you have to keep character because you are just did a great scene. But in the back of your head, you're like, Holy shit! I'm gonna get shot. How do I react? How does it you do that transition? Because it went smoothly, but I would think, do you jump too fast? Because he, obviously he's not shooting you. But I mean, how's it after? I mean, what was that? shoot What was it like shooting that scene when he shoots you?
1: For the first time, Tony came in with the rubber gun, and he starts you know putting the silencer on and everything, and uh, all of a sudden he puts the gun up to my head, and, and I go, Tony. Oh, come on, man. You're not going to shoot me, are you? And he goes, I'm sorry, man. It says I have to in the script. You know? Um, and, and you work it out. And in terms of splitting it, here's the thing. I don't think he's there to shoot me. He's not there to shoot me. The thing that I'm alarmed about is firearms. What are firearms? Like? And then in my brain, as an actor, what I go is like, well, how would Of course, of course, these fuckers have people who are, have guns? Of course, these these reprobates
0: <laughs>
1: people who have weapons on them. Oh my gosh, what, what is going on here? And when he says, Oh, I think I'm in the middle of something. the thing I think I'm in the middle of, I'm in the middle of, of the, that nonsense. And he, and I'm not wrong. I am in the middle of it, but Lalo just takes care of that. Cause he is, I'm in the middle of that, of Lalo wanting to talk to them. So he just eliminates me. And when we have to get the practicality of like getting shot, you Know he put, a couple times he did put the gun up and go bang, which of course you can't use. Um, but what we had is somebody off stage, uh, who had two uh planks of two by four, they'd smack them together, so we'd get right to the thing. And then, uh, you know, the way we choreographed it, and it is it's a dance. I'm looking at him with the gun, and then I look back at them for a second. At that point, I know the gun comes up, and I can feel the gun come up, and it's, and it, it's the idea of like. We have timed it out. By the time he gets the gun up, by it gets to its point, that's when it's gonna go off immediately. There is no I'm pointing it, waiting it, and shooting it. So as soon as I see it pass my eye, I hear I hear the and I go. And we got lucky a couple of times, right out of the gates. Wham, 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 and then I fall into a pad and that was it. And then the rest of it was all choreographed. You know, they they created a rubber table for me to bounce my head off. Uh, they had me in a harness that took most of my weight. So all you see was my head smacking. Um, and we only did that about four times because Tom was like, I don't want you to hurt your head anymore. Of course, like an actor, I'm like, no, I'll do it. I'll do it as much as <laughs> you And then when I rolled a camera to die, uh, we rolled the camera. And I, I, I died with my eyes open and my, and my mouth open. Moron. My, my mouth open. Kids, don't do that at home. Um, and then they put the camera down on the ground, and I got to the final position, and then I re-rolled it up from the moment where I hit my head, and then they said action, and I unspooled it a couple of times. So it's really like three or four pieces that get built together that make it look seamless.
0: Well, the funny thing is, its is, it was such a cliffhanger, and that's the one thing I hate about social media, okay? When I lived in LA, I would always watch, you know, Breaking Bad or whatever the Shield or whatever shows on, they always had an East Coast feed. Because all these idiots from the East Coast would go on, and all my friends are back here and go, oh, yeah, did you see what happened? Oh, yeah. I didn't watch Game of Thrones. I knew what happened every week because idiots, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. What's good about this was it seemed pretty quiet. And, you know, you want to tell someone, I remember me and Joanne were like, we just look at each other like, oh, my God. I mean, that was one of the one of those shocking scenes. You didn't see that coming from Anywhere, if someone said to me, hey, Steve, you know, hey, you've interviewed Patrick, you you think he'll die? I'd be like, nah, I'll be through the whole time. And I had a friend text me, my friend Carrie Steuben. He's like, holy shit. Oh, you know, holy shit. What is that like for you as an actor to know that your scene is going to be the buzz? Because people now will be recording, watching a week later. That must be great as an actor to know that people are going to be chattering on, holy shit like water cooler stuff, like, did you see what happened to Howard? What is that like as an actor? I mean, it must be such reassuring, just a great feeling.
1: Well, it it does feel good. I have to tell you, I was sort of surprised at the onslaught. I mean, the writers really knew, and and Vincent Peter really knew. They were like, if we can keep this quiet, it's going to have an impact like nobody's business. And I don't think until I saw it that I realized that even though I knew it was happening, I filmed the scene and everything else, but it wasn't until I watched it on Monday night with everybody else. I was like, oh, oh, boom, let's talk. And then it just goes black. You're like, what? And people actually record themselves watching stuff like that. Somebody sent me a YouTube link of people watching Howard that shot. And it's, it's crazy. (laughs) People falling out of their chairs, just dumbfounded. It was great. It was really fun to be a part of a moment like that, without a doubt, you know, and and immediately afterwards, um, you know, I've never seen Howard Hamlin trend before on, on the Internet. So that was fun. Um, but to your point of people spoiling it, of course, people are like, oh, and for this whole season, I've been really good about never talking about the show. And I really try to me talk about it anyways, in deference to people after like two or three days. But at this point, it's been two years since we aired. It's the final season. If you don't want to get AMC Plus, I get it. If you don't want to buy AMC, I get it. But you cannot expect us to not talk about the final season of our show after six years of work. And so we waited a couple of days until we started to like discuss it. And even then, I discussed it. I didn't post a whole bunch of stuff that was even, you know, directly involved with that. But, you know, I get stopped at Ralph's. And in the park a lot more these days. How are they done you dirty? You know that kind of
0: stuff. You know it's funny. They also did nacho dirty. Your your Instagram used to be a lot of times with Michael Mando. You used to be in scenes, but you guys you guys never had a scene together. I don't think. How did you guys kindle a friendship? How did that friendship? Because you guys always looked with your Instagram posts. You always looked like you were having fun. I mean, was it just something you weren't in each scene? So how did that friendship develop on set?
1: Uh, you know, I'd go and watch him. I'd go watch his work. His man was a great actor. I'd like to find out stuff that I could steal from him. That's the way he'd go, right? Um, plus, we're all in Albuquerque together. So when he had time off and I had time off, we'd go hiking. We'd go out. We'd hang out and stuff like that. You know, we really were a family and are a family. And um, so it was fun to hang out with one another. You know, he'd come out and watch me and, uh, and give me pointers. <laughs> and then uh, I'd go watch him and keep my mouth shut. How about that? And um, that goes for Giancarlo and for Jonathan Banks. I hung out with Jonathan a ton. Uh, we didn't go hiking. He wasn't much for a hiking guy, but but he was a good dinner companion and great stories. And I learned a lot from him too. You know, I remember the one time that I think it's the end of uh, season three, maybe season four, when he takes Werner up onto the, the high desert and has to execute him. Cold. It's cold up there and it's the middle of the night. And so Bob and Ray and I said, Well, let's go, let's go see and we went up there and Jonathan's like, Oh, you came to watch. And Werner, uh, who played Sigler on the show, he was like, What are you doing here? And we like, We came to watch. It's cold. You know, we came to say hi and, and give you camaraderie and stuff like that. And he was dumbfounded. He was like, What? That's absurd. I've never heard of other actors coming to watch other actors and we're like, Well, oh. First of all, what else are we going to do? And second of all, it's cold up here. We know Jonathan will get cranky if he doesn't have somebody to talk to him, so we didn't want him to get, he's shooting you already. We don't want him to get angry at you as well. So we sat there and hung out for a while. Now, granted, when we got cold, we went home. But we were there for a little bit, and I just thought that was very indicative. It seemed matter-of-fact that that's what we would do. And the fact that Werner uh, was like, this is odd, uh, made me go, oh, it is kind of odd, but, you know, that's the kind of gang that we travel with, you know. So Mando and I are friends. Of course we are. John Carlo and I are friends. Jonathan and I are friends, even though we never cross paths professionally
0: on the show. How important to you as an actor, and I think, you know, when I did stand-up, I always would I worked at the Comedy Factory outlet in Philly and I'd always watch the headliners and even as I became a working act and getting on the road I always really soaked in I was a sponge to the headliners and when they would talk to me after the show I would feel very I'd be one you feel honored but you it's that thing about the craft how important it is do you think it is that actors should always have want to get more knowledge about the craft because some people I think they just do it and they go oh we're great but like you've seen someone you know you went and saw the show you're supportive You seems like you could learn I mean is that very important to you?
1: Oh yeah yeah absolutely I mean you always want to get better at least I think you do Um I mean unless I unless I am Cary Grant and all the phone calls are coming in one way and all I do is pick what project I want to do but I'm not that guy you know I don't think I'll ever be that guy you know so what are you going to do? You want to be able to show up and show different colors uh, for, for stuff. I mean, watching, let's go back to, let's go back to, to uh, Giancarlo, Mando, and, uh, and Jonathan Banks. All three of those cats have a different energy than I do. And all three of those cats um, have a way of being still and having a big inner life going on that draws the viewer in. Like, they're not afraid to just sit and think. Me, I lead with my head. I lead with a, hey, I got jazz hands. You know, that's sort of my deal. I mean, Howard's pretty buttoned down, but he's still much more kinetic than any of those guys. And so I watch, I'm like, so why are we watching? Why am I watching Jonathan? He's doing nothing, except he's not. He's doing a ton of stuff. And he's also on a very practical level. You're watching oh, a slight eye movement gives me this. A cock of the head can really denote something, especially if you're being very reserved. And that's the kind of tricks and the kind of things that I like to look at. because I'm like, oh, when can I use that? And watching John Carlo play somebody um, who is not as in control as the Gus Frank that we see in Breaking Bad, that was fascinating. Watching him discover the fissures as he's getting his feet to become that guy, that was a master class as well, you know? So I love that stuff. Watching Ray work, I'm like, ooh, that's how an actor works. Maybe I should do that next time. And I'm not kidding. She would come to play with all these different ideas, thoughts, and homework and things like that. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. You know? Because sometimes you just need to see people to go like, oh, that's another way of doing it. Great. Let me try
0: that. So how has your career grown for from this? How has your career grown for the fact that, you know, You've been on this show and people know you, but now you've been on a you're on a legendary show now. And as we said, you're such a big part of this last season. Do you come out of that, as we said earlier, you said, you know, I'm still an actor doing my job, and you've always said that you're a guy who has to go out for auditions, but do you come out with a little more confidence now that people they knew you from Better Call Saul, but now from this last season, you really got cemented as a guy with chops because you were on so much and you had a big part. How does that make you feel as an actor and how do you think that will parlay your career?
1: Uh, it makes me feel great that they entrusted me with such important things and it made me feel good that I think, uh, I think it worked out. Um, and I think the good news about it being, you know, living on Netflix and all that sort of thing is that it will have residual echoes for me. And Yeah, does the conversation change in the industry for me? You know, I I don't know. I mean, let's be honest. I'm still a white guy over the age of 50, and those are three strikes against you in these days. You know what I mean? I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just what it is, and that's okay. It's still a young and pretty business, and uh, I'm no longer young, and that's okay. Um, Again, if you're part of the conversation and people have seen the work or heard about the work, because sometimes rumor is just as powerful— um, it might open some more doors or it might get me some considerations for jobs that uh, that I don't even know I'm being considered for you know what I mean? I'm the last to know basically. There may be conversations that are going on with my agents and other people who are producing projects and uh, you know I'll never know some of that stuff uh, I think it will help if nothing else because you know it was a successful series right and who doesn't want to be associated with something that's successful? And so uh, I'd love to be able to slide into another show and and, and do something. But um, it really is, you know, even Bob, and he's Bob Odenkirk, he's got six or seven different projects going because he knows not all of them are going to go. He knows things are not going to get into production. He knows even if it's really good, they might not air it or it won't find an audience. It's a it's a, it's a business of vagaries, and we had a luxury seven year run where um, the critics liked us, the fans embraced us, and uh, we kind of got to go out on top in a really great way. Uh, and uh, I'm just looking for the next thing, you know. We'll see what happens, you know. I'd love to create something, I'd love to do all those things, but uh, you know, will Saul help me?
0: Absolutely. Is it a guarantee? Absolutely not. Now, I, this is funny. As someone who's been in Hollywood, I it was going on my mind. I wanted to ask you this before I forgot it. The scene, and okay, in the, the first scene of the second half of the last season, when they're doing the cleanup and then they put the body, was that you, or did they bring in a body double when they throw the body in the grave, or what? What, what was it? Was that you or a body double?
1: I, I my mother was curious about that whether I got paid for that episode or not. much she was? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was in it. There was also a stunt double and a body double who did a lot of laying around, but I did a lot of the laying around because you know the camera was going to catch my face and stuff like that. Um, and the grave, that's all me. You know, they threw Tony. Well, they didn't throw us in. Stunt guys did the throw, which was an awful watch. They just throw their bodies. I and mean, God, love these guys. Uh, but Tony and I climbed down to the grave. We did that. Um, so, no, I did a lot of lying around. And by the way, so we finished uh, episode 607. Goodbye, Howard. Blah, 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 blah. And then we're starting to film 608. And I'm a body, and so I'm all made up with my head blown off and everything else. And that's when Bob, of course, has his heart attack. And um, that all happens. And then six weeks later, we're back at the same set, and I'm still like this again. And um, and we're lying there. And it's just, it's absurd. It was absurd that we were back at the same spot doing the same thing six weeks later after Bob had his heart attack. and uh, And at that point, they're like... They're like, oh, we're sorry, Patrick. You have to lay around. I'm like, guess what? I've got no problems. I can lay around all day. That's fine. You know, it was a real great wake up of like, great. We're making a good television show, and that's nice. But man, you know, life is a serious business, and it really can take you out in a second. So, is my job to lay around with a half load head today? That's my job. Ha. How what,
0: lucky am I? What was the vibe like when Bob had a heart attack? Because I've had heart problems before, and and. When it happens to you, you really sit there. I was in a hospital for eight days a few years ago, and it really changes your view on things, and you go, you know, and it really affects your friends. You don't know. I mean, I used to joke with my wife it was before we got married, I'd be like, don't worry, I'm not going to die because, you know, we won't get the deposits back for the wedding. So, you know, it was one of those things. But for what was it, what does it do to a set that you guys are like a family, and even though you know, you know, you're pretty much done, you thought you'd just be down there doing this few scenes of falling in a casket, you know, the grave. What ha- what happens to the cohesiveness of the unit? I mean, do you are you all just in shock? I mean, how scared were you? Because he's your leader. The, the bottom line is that's like a quarterback from the NFL, you know, having a heart attack. What, what went on with the whole cast and the crew and everybody?
1: Well, you know, immediately you go, you have absurd thoughts when all the things are going down in the first 24 hours of like, well, that can't happen to Bob. He's number one on the call sheet. Um, Bob can't have a heart attack. He has a pitch with Netflix next week. Um, we're making a TV show. And then all of a sudden you go like, oh, we're done making this TV show. It's over. They're never going to air this. It's over. I, you know, Our concern first goes towards, um, is Bob okay? Because heart attacks can have varying degrees of effectiveness on people, depending on when they get to them. You know, Rosa Estrada, uh Definitely saved his life by doing CPR for as long as she did. Uh, they got him to the hospital, and those doctors were able to remove the blockage. And they saved his life as well. And, you know, modern medicine's is an amazing thing that he was able to, to rebound like that. And so six weeks later, they are back in the same spot. And you're like, well, this is weird. This is all really weird. I mean, we all came together very strongly, you know, right afterwards. And then we came back to work. You are tentative a little bit at first. Like what are we doing? But you quickly, your rhythms and your and your and your and your muscle memory take over. We're doing the scene. Now we're doing the scene. Here we are. We're doing the thing. And Bob looks great, as he pointed out. He's he's better now than he was before, right? You know, and uh, and there is a truth to that. Uh, but we did want to make sure that you know, we wanted to make sure we didn't overwork him. Uh, and all those sort of things took took place. But, you know, it was just a constant day. Like, we'd get in the car and we'd drive home. And it's just like, you know, you're, you're alive. You should be dead, man. <laughs> and then, uh, don't sweat the small stuff. By God, right? At all. At all. And then what a gift. What a miracle that we got to finish the show. A miracle. And then it got you know, it got to be received as as the way it did and it played so well. I mean, it's just, it's a talented. Maybe I can play Bob in the Bob Odenkirk story later on. I mean, obviously I'd have to lose some of my hair. Oh, sick
0: burn, sick burn. I got a question. You've told me this story before, but I want, for the new listeners, tell the people the story about how you ended up getting this role. Because it's really, you know, it's something, you're an actor, as you say, you're a guy who needs love. You've told me that before. You know, somebody you know you need the audition, you need the love, and you tell the story about when you had to audition for Veep after being on the hit series. But you never thought you were going to get this role. Tell the people the story, how you got this role, because I think it's very inspirational that you, you didn't quit. You know, a lot of people sit there and go, ah, you know, and you said everyone wanted this role. But tell the people the story about how you ended up getting the role as Howard, and you, you didn't think you were going to get it.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, it started off with a I, – I, I hadn't had auditions in a while, and I was starting to get that that realization of like, oh, it's tough. It's tough when you're over 40. You know, it is. They just don't write the rules. And then all of a sudden I got an audition for a, a, an ABC family show called Dog with a Blog. And I was like, what? I mean, the dog is number one on the call sheet, I think. And I was like, what? Now, my friends play the um, – the mother and father on the show, it's a fine job. It's a fine show. It's just, it's dog with the blog. And I hadn't had an audition in a long time. I'm like, this is what's out there. <sighs> well, I got over myself, put my acting suit on, I went down and there was a room of like, I don't know, 20 of me. And some of those guys had Emmys and some of those guys had shows of their own. And it was a reminder of like, wow, I was lucky. I even got called for this. Anyways, I do a good audition. And, um, so and so that I call my manager on the way home and I say, Hey, um, I think I may have booked this. I never say that. That's the kiss of death. And sure enough, they call around five o'clock that afternoon. They put a thing. They call. They they put a pin in you. I mean, they're not hiring you, but you're definitely the the guy they're looking for. Um, And then five days go by. I call my manager. I'm like, what happened? What's going on? He calls back real quick and says, oh, they cast a name of your name. Don't worry. We'll find something, something else. And I was like, what? There was 20 guys in the room. All of us have resumes that are like 25 years long. I mean, what, what do you mean they found a your name? And it really depressed me. And then three weeks later, I was seeing Better Call Saul, a spinoff from Breaking Bad. I'm like, well, if they're getting a your name for better, for dog in blog, guess what? <laughs> they're getting a movie star called Saul. But my job is to go see casting directors in the casting directing office of Bialy Thomas. Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas called me in for this. And they also cast The Walking Dead. And that was in season four. And I thought, well, maybe maybe if I go in and I do really well on this Better Call Saul audition, I'll get a three-episode arc on The Walking Dead and get eaten by a zombie. That's what I was going for. So I go in. I meet Sherry Thomas, her and an iPhone. And uh, we do the audition once. She adjusts me. I do it again. I drive home and do the audition again to the steering wheel, which I always do. And, uh, and I thought, well, that was pretty good. Maybe, maybe I'll get in The Walking Dead. Two weeks later, I get a call. Vince Gilligan has seen my tape, and he likes it. And they would like to test me. And then I go to Sony. And a week later, and I sign a bunch of papers. And I go and I meet Vince. I meet Peter. I meet the whole and, uh And I do my audition. And a week and a half later from that, I get a call saying, you got the job. And I'm thrilled. But the reality is, my career and being an actor is those five weeks. It's between the five weeks of not getting a guest star on Dog with the Blog because they want the name of your name, and then booking a series regular on Better Call Saul. I didn't become a better actor in those five weeks. It reminded me again the vagaries of it all. And the fact of the matter is, I wasn't the answer for Dog with the Blog. I wasn't the answer. I wasn't the guy. But I was the guy on Better Call Saul. And I also posit by sticking around as long as I have and auditioning for as much as I have and putting myself in a position to have those auditions gave me the opportunity for that. But there's a little bit of luck and fortune involved with that. And then, then I'm on the ground floor of a series with that writer's room. So they start writing for me, to my strengths. So we end up on season six where they, they give me something that I can handle that has been earned by the character because they opened all these windows to him emotionally season by season. The whole building staircase. I mean, that's how it works. That's the collaboration. But honest to God, you know, it could have been somebody else. I'm glad it wasn't. But... It could
0: have been. I'm glad it wasn't either. I, I, I was a fan of yours. I remember when I, I saw you in season two and I hit up Spencer Garrett and I said, Do you know Patrick Fabian? I like that guy. And he got on the show. How important? I want to ask you this. How important are the fans to you? Because, you know, once again, this is a kind of show that the fan base is very, um, they're very into it. I mean, I know a guy, this guy Chuck Shoot, who's a big fan. He's sitting there. He had the chicken and the stuff for that last episode. He posted it on Facebook. He was so excited. But, how important is it to you that to relate with the fans? And are you someone that will... Because you know there's going to be better Call Saul conventions, probably. Is that something you would be into doing? I mean, I know you probably went to Comic-Con. But that's something where you can really give back to the fans. Because it seems like the fans the fans just adored this show.
1: Oh, yeah. The fan base was crazy. You know, and Shout out to the Breaking Bad store in, in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's right there in Old Town. Mark and Ed... Have made a business, and it's uh, it's with the blessings of Vince and Peter and Sony and AMC. They are there for all of your Breaking Bad needs. The Breaking Bad Store in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mark and Ed have some tats of the show. That's how I first met them. And at first, I was like, "What are you doing?" And then I got it because they love it so much, and they've got a whole Facebook group, and they're so they're so nice and loyal, and they know the ins and outs of the show. It really it it it, it, it makes me so happy. And on, on the Internet, you know, I've tried to engage with fans absolutely through Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. Um, I like to have some fun with it. I like having fun with Ray Seahorn on the Internet and things like that. Um, it's amazing. It, it's amazing the details that they come up with, the memes that they come up with. Man, people have made, made some crazy Howard stuff out there, which is really great. Some of it, I guess it's like there's standing Howard. And they're putting up stuff with but it's got rap lyrics so they cannot like retweet and stuff like that. But it's so funny, it's so great. And uh, you know, I never thought I'd be on a show where uh that sort of thing would happen. The fans are great because they also love breaking bad for the most part. There's a there's a shared from but they're a family as well, because they made Breaking Bad. You know, they did, and then they made Better Call Saul by showing up, giving it a chance. When they could have been like, eh, maybe not so much. So I love it. And if they had a Breaking Bad convention or a Better Call Saul convention, i I'm sure to go. It's funny you say I do Comic Cons. I'm doing my very first Comic Con uh, in late October, the, the big Texas con in San Antonio. So if you're in San Antonio and I think it's October twenty eighth, I'll be there for my very first Comic Con to sort of see how that goes. I love interacting with the fans and I and when people stop me on the street and they do, um, I don't mind. I look I get to be on a great fun show that had a high profile and you want to say hi and tell me it was good work. I'll, I got two minutes for that. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, and I don't know if you know this, but there hasn't been a selfie I haven't been willing to take
0: yet. So one final question, what's coming up for you? What do you have going on? You know, I look, well, it's funny cause I'm looking at, I'm looking at a, I always check on IMDb, which people like you, it's hard to, because you have 153 credits. That's how I always laugh when actors see so you go, oh, well, I interviewed someone, they had like 260. I'm like, where do I even start? You know, but, you know, I look under here, and, and first of all, it says the Gordita Chronicles. Yeah, the Gordita Chronicles, HBO Max, unfortunately,
1: it just got canceled. It didn't get picked up for a second. Well, it didn't get picked up by it for a second season. Uh, it's about a Dominican family that comes to Miami in the 1980s, and it's really fun uh, and really sweet. And uh, HBO Max is going through some business changes, I believe, up top. Then the Discovery are getting together, and they're sort of cleaning house, as happens in the business. as a regime change, and things Things go forward and things don't. Bordino Chronicles is not going forward in HBO Max, but it may be going forward somewhere else. I was recurring on that show, and I, I hope it comes back, because we shot in Puerto Rico. We had a lot of fun. Um, And I'm playing a completely different character other than Howard. I play more like a a Ted Danson-type character. I'm trying to channel him. Um, And I just got done doing ADR today on a movie called The Other Zoe that uh, stars Andy McDowell and myself and some uh, really fun young kids. It's actually about the young kids, but I'm going to keep saying it stars Andy McDowell and myself. (laughs) Um, uh, It's all these YA kids who have massive followings. Uh, They're they're, they're wonderful and really sweet. Uh, And that's not going to come out, I think, probably until maybe even Valentine's Day. But that's a, that's a great movie coming up. I'm working with some uh, new directors, doing a short this weekend. And, uh, and I've got an independent film lined up in Seattle in January. So i got a lot of irons in the fire with that sort of thing. Still doing uh, sort of cleanup duty with Saul with interviews and requests and all that sort of thing. And, you know, every day I wake up, that phone call could come that has me my next big job. I'm crossing my fingers for the series that shoots in the south of France for the next seven years. <laughs> if you know anybody who wants to do that,
0: I'm available. One more thing. How much do you love acting? How much do I love what? Acting.
1: Oh, I don't work, man. It's that whole thing. If you're doing what you love, you don't work a day in your life. I have I have defied the odds and gotten really lucky. I've been doing this. I stopped waiting tables in nineteen ninety two. So that's thirty years ago, right? I've been working for thirty years and I've been doing exactly what I love, and that goes from working with the Olsen twins, to kissing Xena, to working with Angela Lansbury, to riding horses, to killing, being killed. You know, it's been, it's been fantastic. And this last six years, even while I was doing Better Call Saul, I got to go do an independent film, Driver X, and that was fun. And I got to work on Bordita Chronicles. I got to work on all these things in between. So it's been, it's taken me around the world. It's my favorite thing to do. It still interests me. I still am trying to figure out how to do it well. I believe I've been told it's just talking and listening. And yet, and yet, and yet, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I love the the, uh, the tightrope aspect of it all. I wouldn't do anything else, and hopefully I won't have to.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Patrick. Now, how can people get in touch with you? I know you're very active on Twitter and Instagram. Is it all at Patrick Fabian?
1: Now, you know, Instagram is Mr. Patrick Fabian. I don't know why. I th- I felt fancy. Mr. Patrick Fabian on Instagram at Patrick Fabian on Twitter, and I don't really do Facebook, and you can find me on Cameo right now too. If you want to raise some money from the Los Angeles Food
0: Bank and the Rio Grande Food Project, so people check out Patrick. Go, uh, go check out Better Call Saul. If, if you know, if you didn't see the, if you didn't know Howard died, you know it was on a few months ago. Tough shit. You should have known. You're not a fan if you don't know that. And people go to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find over 925 episodes on there. Email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. Instagram at coopertalk1. Twitter at CooperTalk. Facebook, Cooper Talk Radio. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.